Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. So today is November the 5th. Remember, remember the 5th of November. And I have been wanting to do an episode on the gunpowder plot on November 5th for years, but I keep forgetting So guess what? It's November the 5th, and it's time for a special gunpowder plot episode, because I remembered. So just really quick before we get started in on it, a reminder, actually an announcement that the 2019 Tudor planners are available now to pre-order at a discount at TudorFair.com. They are beautiful. I have a video of them there. And so you can check it out, tutorfair.com, to get your 2019 Tudor Planner pre-ordered at a discount. They will ship the week of Thanksgiving in the US, which is for those of you who don't celebrate Thanksgiving at the end of November. So there we go, just another couple of weeks till they're going to be shipped out. So let's talk about the gunpowder plot, because even though it doesn't happen during our official Tudor Elizabethan period, the seeds were sown during that time. And it was one of the biggest tests of the early reign of James. What Not one of, it was the biggest test of the early reign of James VI, who then became James I of England. So one thing I want to say is that a couple of years ago, I did do an episode on the Catholic experience in Elizabethan England. And I will go back and put that in the show notes and link to that. So you can go back and listen to that for some context. But I want to set the stage here for the gunpowder plot with what was happening for Catholics in Elizabethan England. I'm not going to go into quite the same amount of detail that I did in that other episode, but just let you know that Catholics were not treated that well in Elizabethan England. I always have kind of a hard time when I hear people talk about Bloody Mary and how awful she was to Protestants. And she was, don't get me wrong. But Elizabeth was almost as bad as Mary was towards Catholics. Now, the logic of that was that during this period, England was at war with Spain. And in 1570, there was a papal bull issued by the Pope, obviously, saying that any Catholics were officially absolved of having to to listen or obey Elizabeth, 
they were absolved of having any kind of obedience towards her, and they were in fact actually encouraged to rebel against her. So because of this bull, which was initially designed to kind of put fear in Elizabeth, it actually backfired and made life very difficult for Catholics in Elizabethan England. And if you didn't at least pretend to be Protestant and go to the Protestant services, you were named a recusant Catholic. Recusant meant to refuse. So you were refusing the Protestant service. And if you did that, you would be fined crippling amounts of fines. And so your house would be subject to be searched at any time. And if you wanted to celebrate your mass, you would have to have a priest in your home. To harbor a priest was actually considered treason. So if you sheltered a priest, that would that was officially treason. So it was really not a good time to be Catholic in England. So let's jump forward to the end of Elizabeth's reign. In 1602, a guy called Thomas Percy, he was related to the Earl of Northumberland. He rode north to meet James I. James the sixth, he was It's in Scotland then. So he rode north, he knew Elizabeth was dying and that James would be her likely successor. And he rode to meet James, he met him and he said, you know, we would like when you become king, we would like to tell you that we are loyal to you. And we would like to know that you will give us tolerance and you would let us worship as we want to worship. Now, the thing is, James never actually promised anything. But Thomas Percy left that meeting believing that James was on their side. James, of course, was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic martyr. He was married to a wife who had actually converted to Catholicism. So it seemed like even if he wasn't going to become Catholic himself, he was going to make life easier for Catholics. So Thomas Percy was a friend of a guy called Robert Catesby. Robert Catesby is the other fellow who is a key player in the gunpowder plot. Catesby is actually the one who has the idea for the gunpowder plot. He was an extremely charismatic young nobleman. He had connections, but he was also, again, an open Catholic, an open recusant Catholic. And he didn't want Catholics to just be passive and let their beliefs die, let their old religions die. He looked down on the Catholics who pretended to be Protestant just for their own success. Um, He was very fanatic about being a Catholic. And he wore that very proudly. So those two knew each other. And let's move forward now to early 1603, when Queen Elizabeth dies. So you've got Thomas Percy telling his friends, you know, James is going to promise that he will give us toleration, he will give us tolerance. And we're going to all be liberated. These recusancy laws will be gotten rid of and things will be good. I've gotten James' words on this. Now, the thing is, in the early days, James did relax the persecution of Catholics. He stopped collecting the recusancy fines and it seemed like things might be letting up. But by 1604, so a year or so into his reign, the laws still hadn't been repealed. And the English Catholics felt that he had betrayed them. They felt like they had given, they had held up their end of the bargain and been loyal to him and supported him as king. And he had not done the same thing for them. By 1604, James reimposed the fines for recusancy, and he ordered all of the priests out of England. So again, if you are Catholic and you want to hold the mass or practice the mass, 
You can't legally because the priests are all ordered out of England. So Catesby and Percy, they're all very angry. And Catesby especially thinks that James deserves to die for this. He had given them false hope. He had lied to them. And he was going against God's will. So sometime in the spring of 1604, Catesby decided on a plan. He was going to blow up James and all of Parliament. He had decided that it was God's intention that this happen. So the whole plot got started on the 20th of May in 1604 at a pub just off the Strand called the Duck and Drake, where Catesby met with four of his friends. And this was the beginning of the gunpowder plot. They all took a vow of secrecy, and then Catesby outlined his plan to use gunpowder to blow up Parliament. And this was different than any other kind of assassination attempt in the past. This was going to be something that hurt everyone. It was going to take out not just the king, not just the king's children. So it was not just going to affect the succession, but it was also going to take out the bishops and the lords all of the members of parliament who were going to be there, all of the gentry in the House of Commons, they were all going to be destroyed in one blow. All of the leaders of England were going to be taken out. This is basically a huge plan for domestic terrorism. It was the largest domestic terrorism plan that England has ever seen, ever did see, and ever has seen since that time. If they would have been successful it would have rocked and shaken England to its core. So the people who were there in that meeting were Thomas Percy, and then Catesby's cousin, Thomas Winter, and then a guy called Jack Wright, who is Catesby's old friend, and then a final person in addition to Catesby, Guido Fox, also called Guy Fox. Guido Fox was, he was a soldier, and he had a lot of experience in mining. So he had been in the Spanish Netherlands. He was from Yorkshire. He had been a soldier in the Netherlands fighting with the Catholic forces there. And he had been there for about 10 years. And these men believed that they were going to be fighting for their freedom, not just their freedom, but the freedom of all Catholics in England. So they had this secret meeting where they went, where they talked about their plan, and then they sealed the meeting by having a private mass. And then the planning really began. The first thing that they needed if they were going to be successful with this was to have a base in Westminster. And they immediately got lucky in that independently, apropos of nothing, Percy was appointed a gentleman pensioner. This was kind of a guard of the parliament, which was ironic. And he was able to rent lodgings in Westminster then. And he put Guy Fox there. Now Guy Fox was somebody who was not known to people in London. So he could come and go quite easily. And he didn't attract any kind of a suspicion. Two more people got involved at this point, a guy called Thomas Bates, and then another one called Robert Keyes. They were the ones who were tasked with helping Fox stock the gunpowder. There was a large gunpowder plant mill in Rotherhithe at that point. And because war with Spain had just concluded earlier that year with the, an official peace treaty, there was a glut of gunpowder and it was being sold off cheap with very few questions asked. So Guy Fox was able to buy 36 barrels over a period of several months so as not to attract attention. This was over 10,000 pounds of gunpowder. And the equivalent force would be if you set off 250 cannon 
all at one time. It was going to rock the buildings. It was going to rock parliament. But the other thing they needed then to really have this happen was to be close to parliament, to be underneath parliament, to get all of this gunpowder underneath. Parliament was originally scheduled to open in February of 1605. So they originally had about eight months or so to plan all of this. But then in December, with two months left to go, they the king delayed parliament until early winter the next year. So it was moved till November. And that gave them an additional, you know, six, eight months to plan. So with this extra time, Catesby started to plan the second stage of the plot. And that was going to be a full-on Catholic uprising. He reunited some more friends and families. And what they envisioned was forming a hunting party that was actually then, once the king had died, was going to show its true colors, was going to kidnap the Princess Elizabeth, who was the eldest daughter. And they thought that it would be possible to rule through her, to essentially set her up as a puppet queen and rule through her. And they were really counting on the fact that things would be really chaotic, that with the king dead, with all the princes, with all of the lords, all of the gentry, all of the bishops, that with everybody dead, it would be chaotic and people could just rise to the top. And that's what they were banking on. So then they have another sign that God is smiling on their plot when Percy was able to get a lease on a cellar. It had been an old palace kitchens and was directly underneath the Parliament House. So for whatever reason, Percy was able to get this lease on the cellar. And we'll talk in a little bit about conspiracy theories. There are some who say that this whole thing was masterminded by Robert Cecil for the king for the purposes of entrapping, entrapping, trapping all of these people. So for whatever reason, if you believe in the conspiracy theory, then you might say, well, it was specifically for this. But Percy was able to get this lease on this cellar at right underneath the parliament building. And so they started moving the gunpowder over. And, you know, having everything stored there, they put firewood all around it to to hide it to disguise it. And by October 1605, they were all set up, they had the gunpowder hidden, there was firewood all around it. But Catesby was running out of money. And so he wanted to recruit one more conspirator who had deep pockets. The person that he brought in was Francis Tresham. He was a substantial landholder. He had access to land and to funds and to horses and all kinds of stuff. But Tresham was really hesitant about this. He did not like this idea at all. And he initially said, this is a really bad idea. We need to not do this. But Tresham finally came around. Catesby, like I said before, was very charismatic and Catesby talked him around. So we've got Tresham being brought in kind of unwillingly, and he's clearly going to be the one that is not necessarily the strongest supporter of it. So Tresham had friends in the House of Lords, and he had friends who were Catholic, he was a Catholic, peers who would also die. And so there was the danger that Tresham would try to warn his Catholic friends about what was happening. So that was, again, if you want to believe in conspiracy theories, it's possible that Tresham was brought in kind of on purpose to set all this in motion. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So on October 26th, 
the plan starts to fall apart. It's just 10 days out from Parliament opening and about a mile north of London in Hoxton, Tresham's brother-in-law, Lord Monteagle, gets a letter. Now, he was one of these Catholic peers who would die. He was also what was called a church papist. He was somebody who pretended to be Protestant so that his career would go well, but really he was a Catholic. So the official version of the story is that Thomas Ward, who was a servant of Lord Monteagle, delivered a letter to Monteagle at dinner. And Ward said that he didn't know who the person was who delivered it, but that basically he had been accosted outside by a man wearing a mask. And the letter was actually a warning that Monteagle should not go to Parliament because of a great blow that was going to happen. So Monteagle rides to Whitehall. He gives the letter to James's Secretary of State, Robert Cecil. Robert Cecil is the son of William Cecil, Lord Burley, who was, of course, Queen Elizabeth's great Secretary of State and the person who masterminded so much of what happened with relationships between the Catholics and Elizabeth and you know, what happened with Mary Queen of Scots and all of that. So Robert is his son. Robert is just as Protestant as his father was. And he also has the the entire intelligence network that Francis Walsingham had. So he has a lot of resources. And this is where the conspiracy theorists are with this. So Monteagle goes and hands over the letter. And while Monteagle is handing over the letter, his servant, who is also a Catholic, goes and tells the conspiracy conspirators about the letter. And they, of course, suspect Tresham right away that he's the the prime suspect. And he says he has no idea what happened. And in truth, why would he write that letter? If Lord Monteagle was his brother-in-law, he could just go visit him and say, you know, don't go to Parliament. So again, this is another aspect of this that gets really tricky. So they eventually believed that he was innocent and that he didn't know about the letter. And during this time, we've also got then separately at Whitehall, we've got Monteagle and Cecil talking about the letter, staying up late through the night, looking at it, trying to figure out where it was from. There's actually a theory that it was perhaps one of the plotter's wives who wrote that letter, or maybe Monteagle wrote it himself. It's possible that he was tuned in enough to the Catholic underworld and the plans that he had heard about this. And he decided that it would be a way to set himself up and be a hero if he wrote this fake letter and had it delivered to himself. And he, in fact, he was very richly rewarded. He received a pension of 500 pounds a year for life. So that's another theory as well. But of course, there's also the theory that Cecil was involved from the beginning, that all of this was masterminded by Cecil and that everybody kind of just fell into his plans, right? So at this point, Catesby knows that the plan is up, that everybody's aware of it. And for some reason, he still decides to stick around. The smart move at that point would have been to leave, to go to maybe Ireland, which was Catholic, or the Netherlands, somewhere else. But no, he decides to stick around and keep going. The plan is still on. It's still what, you know, the original, what's going to happen. So Monteagle and Cecil show the letter to the king. And the official version, of course, is that the king was the one who grasped what blow meant and ordered um, the searching for gunpowder, that he's the one who understood that a great blow meant an explosion and that he called to search Westminster. Now, of course, it's probably likely that the uh, that Cecil knew about this too, but it really worked for the narrative to have the king be the one to think about it and, and to show that God 
God's anointed was the one who solved the mystery. So Catesby was going to stay in London and then ride to the Midlands where the hunting party would kidnap Princess Elizabeth. Fox prepares a fuse that would take about eight hours to simmer. And he was going to stay in Westminster to confirm that it had all gone down. And then he was going to ride to the Midlands to join the hunting party as well, and then kidnap Elizabeth and all of this chaos was going to happen and and it would all go well for them. So they believed. But Cecil was ready. So during these couple of days, Cecil was getting ready for this. And, you know, he could have pounced on them as well right away, but he wanted to wait and let the plot play out and kind of let it reach its its end game before he jumped on it as well. So again, the official state version is that they all searched the cellar. They saw a bearded man and a pile of firewood that was too big for the cellar. It was just going to make too big of a fire. You didn't need a firewood pile that big. So they then research and show that the cellar was actually leased to a Catholic. So they go to James. And James, of course, says, oh, well, this is clearly uh, the plot. And this is the gunpowder. And you need to go back and have a second search. Again, it's this is kind of propaganda, (laughs) the official version. It's probably pretty clear that Cecil and they were able to put this together as well. But you know, James gets the credit for this. So on the 5th of November, just after midnight, they have a second search, and they find a man in boots and spurs, he's ready to ready to escape and they arrest him. They find the gunpowder. This man gives a false name. He says his name is John Johnson. It's really Guy Fox. So the conspirators in London hear about this. They decide that it's time to leave for the outskirts to go back to their homes and ride like the wind. They catch up with Catesby who had already left and told him what had happened. Catesby rides to Northamptonshire to meet some of the other conspirators. And still at this point, he still doesn't give up. This man is a fanatic. At this point, you would think, okay, well, no, it's up, it's done. Let's let's just escape and see if we can escape with our lives. But he really clearly wants to be a religious martyr. And so he decides they're still going to do the hunting party. They're still going to spread a rumor that the king is dead and see if they can kidnap Princess Elizabeth. Because why not, right? But as he goes around and tries to push this message, he finds that there's very little support for him. It's clear that the Catholics were quite loyal to James, and they they didn't like the idea that he had perhaps died. When Catesby told the Catholics that James had died, they were very upset by this because it, it again, was going to lead to more uncertainty. They were going to be blamed for it. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. So we've got Guy Fox in jail in the Tower of London, and we've got Catesby and his people running around Northamptonshire spreading rumors that the king has died. And they finally then reach on November 7th, their last safe house, which is in Staffordshire, on the border with Staffordshire. Throughout November 5th, bonfires are lit to celebrate the safety of the king and the princes and everybody. Basically, everybody who's everybody is now safe for the time being. And so they light these bonfires to celebrate that. Bonfires were a a way that people celebrated in general. In the episode I did a couple of months ago on the summer solstice, we talked about burning bonfires throughout the summer solstice to celebrate. So it was a common way that people would would celebrate was with these bonfire nights bonfires. And so that's why the 5th of November is called Bonfire Night. So Guy Fox in the tower still is not talking. He still doesn't give his real name. He refuses to say anything about his co-conspirators, his accomplices. And then King James goes to meet him. When James asked him his motives, Guy Fox responded that a dangerous disease requires a desperate remedy. And James then turns him over 
to the torturers. At this point in English law, you weren't meant to torture somebody who was not proven to be guilty, but Guy Fawkes clearly wasn't trying to proclaim his innocence. And so they went ahead and tortured him to get more information out of him. He was racked. And after that, he did talk. He talked and said everything. So his confession then gave them all the information that they needed on the other conspirators, the other people and and the plan and the plot and everything like that. So then back up in Staffordshire, conspirators are planning a final kind of last stand, like an Alamo kind of thing. And they still had a little bit of powder that they had kept aside. And so they were planning to use that for, you know, a, a big blowout fight. But the weather had been really rainy and really awful, and the powder got wet. So they did what any kind of, you know, those books, the Darwin Awards, they did a completely Darwin Award kind of thing. They decided that it would be a good idea to dry out the gunpowder in front of, wait for it, an open fire. Now, no one was killed when the explosion, the inevitable explosion happened, but one of them was blinded and they had very bad burns, were very badly injured. They saw this as a kind of rebuke from God, that God actually wasn't as in support of their plan as they believed that he had been. So they still say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna still put up a fight. But by the following morning, the 8th of November, the sheriff of Worcester has the house surrounded. He's got 200 guards surrounding the house. And Catesby and Percy are there. They think that they will defend the house. But then when it becomes clear that they're not going to be able to, they decide to walk out together. And in great poetic irony, the same musket ball took them both out. Percy died immediately. Catesby did not. Catesby was actually able to crawl away to a chapel that was nearby. And he died clutching a picture, an icon of the Virgin Mary. So it was almost as if he had planned this down to his death. He was making a, a very dramatic death. So Catesby dies clutching a picture of the Virgin Mary. The others were immediately rounded up. They were put in the tower. Tresham died in his cell of a urinary tract infection. Everybody was tried in 1606 and they received traitors' deaths. So that meant they were pulled through the streets of London and then hung until they were almost dead, but not quite, cut down and castrated and their stomachs pulled open, they're disemboweled, all this kind of stuff while they were still alive. Hopefully they would have passed out so that out of the pain so that they weren't conscious for it. And then their heads were cut off, their bodies were chopped into quarters, and their heads were put on spikes above Tower Bridge to warn other people to not engage in such things. So the thing is, for Catholics, life got a lot worse. The recusancy laws stayed in place, and there was more suspicion than ever seen with the Catholics. So it wound up really not being a good idea in terms of how Catholics were then treated. And so that is the story of the gunpowder plot and how it came about and how it reached its really um, kind of ironic ending with these conspirators drying out gunpowder in front of a fire. So I would love to hear what you think, especially the conspiracy versions or the conspiracy theories. Do you think that Cecil was involved with this? Do you think that they were all just puppets in his game? Tell me, I would love to know. So you can go to englandcast.com, facebook.com slash englandcast uh, to leave a comment. You can tweet me at Tesco, T-E-Y-S-K-O. And remember that you can pre-order the Tudor Planner 
for this year at tutorfair.com. So thank you so much for listening. I hope that if you are out burning bonfires tonight and listening to me at the same time, thank you. And I will be back again in another couple of weeks. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great one. Blow northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoot a bird in Bauerbrick, that's all his family is on sea.